most of us have been there. Well, Matthew chapter 7 and verse number 15, and we are, are nearing the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Just a few verses left, and if you've been with us, it's taken us several months, but we've gone through every single verse that Matthew records that Jesus spoke during the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and we are now in chapter 7, and we're beginning in verse number 15. And there Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, Depart from me, you that practice lawlessness. Have you ever pulled up in somebody's yard, and uh, maybe you're visiting, maybe uh, you've never been there before, and uh, you're about to open your door, and you notice a large sign, normally a red sign that says, Beware of the dog. Does that change the way you approach the house? I think most of us have a fear, uh, you know, of of an angry dog. And by the way, I, I really... I'm scared of a big dog, but I like it when a dog, you know, is, is honest and up front, up front. And, you know, he's got a big German Shepherd, and he starts barking right off the bat. It's the sneaky ones that bother me. You know, they walk up and start wagging their tail, and you say, okay, everything's okay. And next thing you know, he's trying to bite you on the back of the leg. Uh, well, I guarantee you it certainly changes the way I approach a house. You know, if it says, beware of the dog, I get out, and, and I start looking for the dog. Before I make any movement toward the door, I want to either make contact with the owner of the home, the owner of the dog, or put my eye on the dog and uh, and also keep a clear path back to my vehicle so I'll know how to escape uh, if need be. Well, that certainly changes. Well, what Jesus is saying here should change the way we act. It should change the way we view those like myself, a preacher, or someone who proposes to speak for God, it should change the way that you view those who propose to speak in God's name. Jesus said, beware of the wolf. Beware of the wolf. There are wolves out there. So don't be naive and simply just because someone dons a suit or puts a tie on or a clerical collar or stands behind a pulpit or has a radio program or a television program or somehow they represent to the public that they're speaking on God's behalf, do not be naive. Do not simply listen and take what you hear either from a pulpit or from a radio or a television or a podcast or any other location. Don't simply take it As the gospel, Jesus said, beware. Beware of the wolf. Beware of the wolf. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, it's always sad when a warning is not heeded. You know, we all, probably one of the most famous disasters in modern history, I guess we still call it modern history, it's a little over a hundred years ago now, but uh, the Titanic. 
You know, and, and uh, I understand that as they were setting sail, uh, that a message came forward to the bridge that, you know, there, there are a possibility of icebergs ahead. And we don't know the reason. I don't want to, you know, land blast the folks who were in charge. But the bottom line is uh, that they did not slow down. They did not heed that warning. They continued on, wanted to break that Atlantic record in that brand new ship. And, of course, bring, no doubt, great profit uh, to the company. And uh, they struck an iceberg and with great loss of life. And by the way, I'm sure you've heard of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, right? If you hadn't, shame on your teacher or shame on you. Certainly, you heard of the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. But did you know it wasn't a surprise? Did you know we had radar working in Hawaii on that morning? As a matter of fact, the radar operator... He saw a great big blip on his radar screen. He said, man, what in the world is this? He called his, his officer in charge. He said, hey, I got, I got a situation here. I know it's Sunday morning. You know, everybody's sleeping in. And, and, uh, but I got this huge blip on my radar. What do you think, Sarge, or whatever his rank was? And, you know, if you've read anything about it, the, you know, the, the, the officer in charge, he says, Thought a minute, he, he looked at his page. Oh, you know what? Those are B-17s coming back from the... There's a flight of B-17s they're supposed to be coming back from California. Don't worry about that. No big deal. It's just those B-17s. No warning was issued. And, of course, then it, it did become the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. But it needn't to have been a surprise. There was a warning. But yet the warning was not heeded. Many of you know I love history, and if you, uh, all of you may not know this detail about the World War II, but, but you remember when Hitler made his surprise attack on Soviet Russia or the Soviet Union. I mean, how do you move millions of men? It was the largest land invasion in the history of warfare when Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union. How do you move that much men and equipment into place without somebody noticing you know what the answer is? You don't. People do notice. And, and, and Stalin's spies told him, they said, listen, Hitler's about to invade. But Stalin had a preconceived notion. He could not fathom. He thought that, that he and Hitler had a deal. And, 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 and Hitler wouldn't do that. Well, you know, whatever they're telling me, they must be all be crazy. Uh, he's not going to invade. He wouldn't dare invade me. Not, not Soviet Russia. You know, with our millions of troops, no, no way, he, he's not that stupid. He's not going to invade us. And, and Stalin did not heed the warning. And Stalin, because of that, Hitler came relatively close to conquering Russia, a feat that has never been, never been accomplished in all of, of, of warfare history. Even Napoleon couldn't do it. And millions and millions of, of Russian and Soviet soldiers lost their lives because Stalin did not heed the warnings he was given. And I think you could take every disaster that has ever occurred and you'll find that somewhere along the line there was a warning. There was a warning that went unnoticed, a warning that was ignored, a warning that didn't fit in with somebody's preconceived notion of reality and the way things are and the way things should be and the way, thing, the way they thought things were. And because it didn't fit in, it was ignored and pushed aside. And Jesus is warning us, beware of wolves. Beware of the wolf. There's a wonderful passage, as a matter of fact, if... Uh, 
you know, if you pastor, you know, I guess I'm your pastor now, and I, if I ever start a message in Acts chapter 20, of course, some of you might want to celebrate uh, if I do, but often if a pastor says, turn to Acts chapter 20 and verse number 25, that might be a sign that he is, that's his last sermon. Because Acts chapter 20, verse 25, is one of the classic goodbye sermons in Scripture. Paul is going to Rome, and, and he goes to the Ephesian elders, and, and uh, you know, everybody said, Paul, don't go to Rome. Even somebody's prophesied and says, you know, chains await you at Rome. Don't go to Rome. And, and Paul says, I'm, I'm going to Rome. I'm bound in the Spirit. I must go to Rome. And so Paul gathers the Ephesian elders together, there in Acts chapter 20 and, and verse number uh, actually starts a little bit earlier uh, in verse 24 and, and even before, but we're going to pick up in verse number 25. And, and it's a classic goodbye sermon. And it is a wonderful contrast to the false prophet. Paul was a true prophet. And Paul begins to give his goodbye. Notice what he says in, in Acts chapter 20, verse 25. He says, And indeed now... I know that you all among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. For I know this, that after my departure... Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Now, So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more, and they accompanied him to the sheep. I mean, to the sheep. They accompanied him. We're talking about wolves and sheep here. They accompanied him to the ship. Paul was speaking to the sheep. Now, that is a wonderful passage that contrasts what a true prophet is. Paul speaks about how he gave the word of God freely. He held nothing back. How he was not greedy. He coveted no one's money or possessions. How he did these things to serve them and to serve the Lord. Another great passage in Scripture that has to do with false prophets or wolves in sheep's clothing is the book of Jude. Jude is one of the shortest books in the Bible. It has only one chapter. So if somebody ever tells you, turn to Jude chapter 2, they're checking you out. And you start flipping, you've just failed the test. There is no Jude chapter 2. There's one chapter in the book of Jude. But the book of Jude is all about false teachers and false prophets. And in Jude uh, verse number 11, Jude has to say this. 
He says, Woe to them, he's speaking about false prophets, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the era of Balaam for profit, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Now if you take Jude chapter 11, and this is what we're going to do this morning, you take Jude chapter 11, you take Jude verse 11, I just fell into my own trap, didn't I? Jude verse 11, and you take what Paul said in Acts chapter 20, and you go back to what Jesus said over in Matthew chapter 7, I think we'll find, and this is what we're going to examine this morning, that there are different types of wolves, different types of false prophets. And Jude lists three people, all three in the Old Testament, and I think in these three people we get a picture of the different types of false prophets that we need to be aware of and we need to beware of these people. The first one, he says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. Now, you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's two sons. And you remember the Bible says in Genesis that they each brought a sacrifice to the Lord. And you remember Abel, he killed an animal and he brought a blood sacrifice to the Lord. And you remember Cain, he grew some crops and he brought vegetables, if you will. He brought some of the fruit of his labor to the Lord. And remember the Bible says that God was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. He was pleased with Abel's sacrifice, but he was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. And, and he reprimanded Cain. And, and you remember that is what led to the first murder recorded in Scripture. That's when Cain became angry and Cain became jealous because God had, had, uh, had shown favor to Abel and he killed his brother Abel. And remember when God confronted Cain and he says, where's your brother? There's that famous passage so often quoted. Am I my brother's keeper? Is it my job to keep up with my brother? I'm not my brother's keeper. And of course you remember the Lord says, your brother's blood calls out to me from the ground. You know, a reminder of God's justice, that God sees everything that happens and that God is the final judge. But what we see about Cain, what was Cain's problem? How did all that trouble begin? It began because Cain decided that he was going to create his own religion. He didn't like the way God uh, had ordained that things be, that there be a blood sacrifice. That's too much trouble. And, and by the way, I'm not really a livestock man. I'm more of a farmer. You know, I kind of grow crops. So I'm going to do my own thing, and I'm just going to bring what I already have. I'm just going to bring my fruit to the Lord. I'm going to bring the fruit of my labors to the Lord. So if a false prophet is one who goes in the way of Cain... What was Cain's original sin? His original sin was he was not content with God's plan. He created his own plan. And the first type of false prophet, according to Jude, is one who goes in the way of Cain, and that is someone who perverts the gospel. The perversion of the gospel. As a matter of fact, you see a contrast to that over in Acts 20. What's one of the things that Paul says that he did? He said... Uh, there in verse number 27, I believe it is. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Paul says there in Acts 20, listen, I didn't create my own gospel. I didn't tailor my gospel to what I thought your likes and dislikes were. I declared unto you what I received. I declared unto you the whole gospel 
unfiltered and unadulterated. I, I gave it to you as I received it from God, and yet what Cain did, Cain perverted the gospel. And, and listen, always remember that Satan is not opposed to religion. Satan loves religion. Some of Satan's best servants are in religion. Some of his greatest weapons are religious weapons. Remember when Jesus walked the earth. Who did he have his harshest words for? The religious people. The scribes and the Pharisees. Who did he have his softest words for? Often those that were considered the, the sinners, if you will, of the day. People who were looked down upon. Satan's greatest, uh, greatest allies often are people with religious trappings. People who claim to speak for God. Who've created their own religion. Hebrews 11.4 says, By faith Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it being dead, he still speaks. He said, well, you know, give me an example. I, I saw an example just this week. I was reading through, a, I think, a news article, something online. I saw this pop up. Clergy blesses late-term abortion clinic. Now, now, you know, abortion, as I have shared just a couple of weeks ago, I believe strongly that the Bible teaches in the sanctity of human life from the moment of conception to natural death. But if you want to push the envelope, we're not just talking about, you know, early-term abortion. We're talking about in Maryland a late-term abortion clinic that specialized in late-term abortions. You know, those are abortions that in the last, tri the last trimester, the last three months of pregnancy. Now, that, that's what they did. That was their specialty. And these four clergy decided that it was uh, their service to God to go just this past week and pray and bless the work that went on there. I think we've got a picture that, that I took from the Washington Post. It was on the Washington Post. If you've got that picture, uh, put it up there. Uh, Chris it says clergy gathered to bless one of the only U.S. clinics performing late-term abortions. And I'm just going to read. Uh, there's some wolves right there. I'm not ashamed to say it. There, there's four wolves for you. Four people who don't. Well, one of them's a Jewish rabbi. The other three are uh, supposedly Christian ministers, and these three Christian pastors or ministers along with the one Jewish rabbi, just this week went to this late-term abortion clinic. And I'm just, if you'll bear with me, I just want to read you a little bit of, this is a Washington Post news article. It says, when clergy gather at an abortion clinic, it's usually in protest outside the building. Rarely are they huddled inside the clinic, not to condemn, but to bless the procedures that happen there. Yet that was the Reverend Carlton Vesey's task as he led a prayer in Bethesda on Monday. And here's his prayer. God of grace and God of glory, in whom we move and live, keep them safe and keep them strong, and may they always know that all they do is for thy glory. That's his prayer for the workers in the abortion clinic. Vesey was one of four Christian pastors and one rabbi who gathered to bless this Bethesda abortion clinic in an unusual interfaith ceremony. A Hindu priest who was supposed to attend from a local temple who had blessed an abortion clinic before was unable to attend. 
then I'll skip over and read another passage. Yet everyday conversation about abortion tends to cast it as a question of faith on one side, the anti-abortion side, versus secular liberalism on the other. But the clergy at this ceremony said that's not the case. Many women who seek abortions are people of faith who pray about their decision, the, cur- the clergy said. Leroy Carhart, the doctor at the clinic, said he hears many of those prayers. They'll sit on the table and say, Is God going to forgive me? And I'll say, I take it you've prayed a lot about this. And they all say yes. Then skipping down to another quote from one of the clergy, said Vesey, a Baptist pastor. By the way, that's the National Baptist Convention. Thank God, not the Southern Baptist Convention. But Vesey, who is a Baptist pastor with the National Baptist Convention, spoke about the legal and moral basis for his pro-abortion right stance on Monday. This is his quote. The Supreme Court affirmed a woman's right to choose an abortion, but before the Supreme Court did it, God had already done it because He affirms a woman's moral agency He preached. And I thought that was interesting that the author saw fit to call his quote, He preached. That's His message. That's His sermon. That God affirms this. He said several of the clinic staff members hummed amen after he said that. You see, that's what they want to hear. I mean, if you're involved in something that perhaps troubles your conscience, you you want somebody to tell you it's okay. No problem. As a matter of fact, not only is it okay, but you're doing God's work. You are in God's service. This is God's will. You are in the service of God. That's why we are so susceptible to to false teachers. Because if we're not careful, we all have things in our life that, that perhaps we, you know, we're uneasy about, we're not sure, and we're looking for someone to bless us. We, we want some authority figure to come to us and say, you're good, you're okay, everything's great, no problem. And that's what these four people are doing. They're perverting the gospel. They're taking the authority that most people feel, most people have some degree of, of, of feeling of... of, of respect for the church or or for the clergy, you know, someone that looks like they're important, and and for someone like that to come up and say, hey, you're good. You're good to go. Matter of fact, you're doing a great job. You're doing God's service. Perverting the gospel. Perverting the gospel. Well, uh, the the last thing, speaking about the doctor, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't read this passage. As a symbol of sanctification... The clergy sprinkled water in each room of the clinic and in the parking lot, which the Reverend Carrie Jackson described as a space of tremendous decision-making. Well, she got that right. I'll agree with her on that. Where women often face protesters as they walk into the medical building that houses the clinic. We give honor to all of these women who choose to come to this space, said Jackson, an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ who has served in United Methodist and Presbyterian Church USA congregations. We sanctify this space and we honor this as holy. Well, my friend, just like I can't, with my declaration, make a sin an act of kindness or love, neither can this woman, no matter what her title, can she with her declaration of sanctification of space make a place holy. It's the actions in the place that make it holy. 
And I, I just want you to know, I mean, I mean, this Jesus said, beware of wolves. And I'm telling you, the wolves are howling. The wolves are howling and the wolves are prowling. And the wolves are out there. And, and my goodness, we could go on and on and, and talk about how different denominations now are ordaining openly homosexual people who practice their homosexual lifestyle. And listen, my friend, how do you know what's right and what's wrong? That's really the battle. Because I can give my opinion and somebody else, you can invite somebody else to come over here and they give their opinion and we can argue all day long. What determines right and wrong? It has to be the Scripture. It has to be the Scripture. And I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I read stuff in the Bible and I say, I don't like that. I, I don't like that. I don't feel comfortable with that. That bothers me. And, you know, God never checked with me before He wrote it. He never said, William, is this okay with you? We want to have a vote on it and be sure it's okay. I, I'm, listen, I'm telling you, all of us need to be careful. I must be careful. Because I, I look, I, I consciously, whether I consciously or subconsciously do it, I know I do it. And I have to guard against it. But when I find something in the Bible I don't like, I want to find somebody that makes it more appealing to me. Somebody who can explain it in a way that, that kind of makes my objection go away. But what's going to happen to William Pope if, if, if somebody comes along and they make everything that's objectionable, objectionable to me in the Bible go away? I'm afraid I'm going to be a ship that's drifting without a rudder or an anchor. And my friend, I don't know about you, but I don't trust my moral compass enough to free myself from the Scripture's boundaries. I fear that if I free myself from the Scripture's boundaries, that I will be a ship that will be lost at sea. I think I look pretty good this morning. I took a bath about three hours ago. And last I checked, my hair was relatively neatly combed. I don't smell, at least not to me. I may smell to you. In other words, I, I, I think I'm a pretty good guy. But don't be fooled. I am not a good guy. The Bible says the heart is desperately wicked. And who can know it? That's why I don't need somebody to pat me on the head. I need somebody to kick me in the other part. Okay? I, I need somebody to step on my toe. I need somebody to tell me, William, you're wrong. You, need, you shouldn't think that way. William, you're wrong here. And, and, and the danger of the wolf is the wolf, remember, comes in sheep's clothing. He doesn't come ranting and raving and, and tearing everything apart. He, he looks good. He comes in sheep's clothing. And he speaks softly. And he tells us the things we want to hear. You know, I don't have time to go into when I bought that boat. You know, you've all heard the boat story. I think y'all did it there, Pastor. Appreciate it. I mean, y'all do all my stories, you know, getting hung on the railroad track and the boat. And, you know, again, I've always thought I was relatively intelligent. You know, not a genius, but, you know, relatively intelligent. And, of course, you know, you get honor graduate at Atco High. I'm not sure what that means. But, uh, you know, I always thought I was relatively intelligent. And so, you know, I'm not going to fall for some, some sham. I'm not that foolish. I mean, you know, people can't treat me that easy. But you know why I ordered that boat? Well, this was back before the Internet. I started to say ordered it online. No, they called me on the phone. This was in the late 80s. Because I wanted a boat. That's what I wanted. And I was looking for a cheap boat I could afford, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody brought it to me. And you know, there's a sucker born every minute. You just got to catch him at the right time. <laughs> and that's true. We're all suckers. It just depends on if, we're, if they catch us at the right time. 
And boy, he caught me at the right time. I wanted a boat. I couldn't afford the boats I saw, but he called with a 199 special. And, you know, hey, I can handle that. 199, I can do that. And, you know, you know the story. I thought it was a big old plastic, like a bass boat. And it came in a little box. You had to blow it up with a you know, little, little thing. And, you know, I look back and say, how could you be that stupid? That's so stupid. I mean, if Lloyd would have done that, she would have never heard it. I said, how? Don't always check with me before you do something like that. I mean, I'd just go upside of her and down the other. You know, if she would have done that, I would have never been that stupid. I wish she had gotten with me. But I did it. And you know, it reminds I'm the same way spiritually. And you are too. But we have to be careful when we, when we want to get outside of God's boundary and, and we start looking for someone to affirm us. I was looking for a cheap boat and I found it. I found it. And my friend, if you're outside of God's boundary and you're looking for somebody to affirm you, you'll find them. You'll, you'll find them. You'll find some, Even if you're doing late-term abortions, you'll find people to not only tell you you're okay, but to affirm what you do and tell you you're doing a great job. You're doing God's service. You're doing God's service. So that's Cain. But let's go to the second one, and that is the way of Balaam. He says, and in the era of Balaam for prophet. Now again, I'm just going to summarize. I spent a lot of time there and we're going to hurry through these last two. But Balaam, if you go back to the book of Numbers, I'll just paraphrase for you. Balaam was a prophet. And, and he was one of God's prophets, as best we can tell. He, God spoke to him and he prophet. He spoke according to what God spoke. But one of, one of the, one of the uh, pagan leaders wanted him to curse the people of Israel. You remember the story? And, and he says, well, I can't do that. You know, I can't curse whose God God has blessed. God came to him in a dream. And remember when he was going to meet the people. That's the famous story, you know, where, where the donkey stopped that Balaam was riding. And, uh, you know, the donkey wouldn't go any further. And he kept beating the donkey and says, you know, donkey, you keep going. And, and finally, God allowed the donkey to speak. I could say a lot of things there, but I'm going to keep going. We don't have time to get sidetracked. They allowed the donkey to speak and... And boy, I bet that was something. And, and you know, the donkey said, you know, why are you beating me? Hadn't I always done what you said? You know, and it, what's amazing to me is that Balaam talked back to the donkey. He said, well, I'm beating you because you won't do what I'm telling you to do. And, uh, you know, then, of course, the angel. God gave Balaam the eyes to see the angel that was standing in the path. And he says, if that donkey would have done what you told him to do, that angel would have struck you down. And that donkey saved your life. And so, you know, Balaam was a man of God, as best we can tell. But here's what happened. If you read over in Numbers 25 and before, and then you also go down to Revelation 2.14, it says, I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. If you go to Numbers chapter 31, verse 16, it tells you that Balaam... Balak wanted to pay him a bunch of money to curse Israel. He said, I can't do it. God's blessed him. I can't curse him. But he gave Balak some advice. He says, but I'll give you some advice. You want these people to fail? He says, send all your young daughters of Moab to basically flirt with the young men of Israel and, and they'll become enraptured by them and they'll marry in and they'll begin to take wives of the children of Moab. And that way you will bring in your pagan practices into the people of Israel and, and you'll do that through their marriage and through their adultery, if you will, and fornication with all the daughters of Moab. And that's exactly 
what Scripture is talking about. So what did Balaam do? It says Balaam did it for profit. There are those who pervert the gospel, the perversion of the gospel. That's what Cain did. But then there are those like Balaam who prostitute the gospel. They profit from the gospel. They take what is true and and we're all searching and think, boy, I can make a lot of money off this. There are a lot of hurting people. I mean, there are people that, that, you know, God does heal, but if I bless this napkin and send it out for $25 a piece, you know, folks will buy that. And, and, uh, you know, boy, I make a lot of money. I buy these napkins for $3 a piece and sell them for $25. I mean, I'm going to be bringing in the money. These are people who profit from the gospel. They may be preaching the true gospel. They may be saying things that are true. They may not necessarily be perverting the gospel, but they are profiting from the gospel. It's all about, remember what Paul said? Remember you could take what Paul said and compare it to all of these. He says in Acts 20, you remember he says, For I have not taken anyone's gold or silver, In other words, I didn't come here to make money off of you. I hadn't been, you know, getting all your money. And and matter of fact, he says, I've I've, uh, made my own way. I've I've worked and made money for myself. And so Paul actually took less from the Ephesians than he had the authority to take. But Paul wasn't in it for the money. But there are those who have a Bible, who preach the gospel, who share, and their one objective is to make money. And Jesus said, Beware the wolf. Beware the wolves. Beware those who pervert the gospel, those like Cain. Beware those like Balaam who prostitute the gospel, who sell the gospel, whose goal is to make money off the gospel. And then there's one last one that he shares. And perished in the rebellion of Korah. Well, now he's not as well known as Balaam and and Cain, but Korah, if you go back and and uh, you go back and read the story of Moses and the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. You know, everybody was happy when Moses let them out, you know, and they came out of slavery. They were, and they crossed the Red Sea. I mean, that was glory, hallelujah, revival time. Remember, they sang what's called the Song of Moses. You know, the horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. You know, I mean, they were all just, just happy, glorious, singing, jumping, and shouting. But they got on into that desert. They started eating manna and all that sounds good to us, you know, manna falling from the sky, but, you know, how many of you like the same meal every single day? You know, quail and manna, quail and manna, quail and manna. I mean, at least burn it every once in a while. Have burnt manna, you know, burnt manna and quail. But quail and manna, quail and manna, over and over again. And, and people, they got to thinking about, you know, the old days get better and better the older they get. You know, you forget more and more that was happening, and you think, boy, that was great, and we all had to go back there. We'd probably stay about an hour and say, man, I'm, I, send me back to 2018. I'm, I don't want to stay back here anymore. But the old days, and they would think about when they were in slavery in Egypt, they say, man, we had them big old, they'd have that meat on the hooks, you know, when we'd be working on that pyramid, and we'd come in, we had that meat, and they fed us so good, and boy, it was great. Here we are sweating in the desert, nothing to eat. And they begin to murmur and complain against Moses. And Korah, he was a member of, of the Levites. He was actually related. I think he was a cousin of Moses's. And Korah, he leads a rebellion. And he stands up and he says, You know, Moses, you know, we're tired of you. I mean, you, you know, you said you was going to bring us to a land flowing milk and honey. Well, I ain't seen no milk and you don't look like honey. And I'm, you know, I, I, we're about ready to go back to Egypt. We're tired of you. You're not a good leader. 
Things aren't going well. And so they begin to form a rebellion against Moses. And if you go back and read, that's the story. You might remember the story in the Old Testament when the ground opened up, you know, and all the people fell into the ground. That was Korah. That was Korah and all those that joined his rebellion. The Bible says that it was an earthquake, the ground opened, and all them, those people fell into the ground and the earth swallowed them up. Who does Korah represent? There are those that, that profit from the Word of God. They prostitute the Word of God. There are those that pervert the Word of God. And then here, there are those that protest the Word of God, that rebel against the Word of God. Listen, the church is not perfect. And by the way, let me just say this. There are false prophets and there are fallen prophets. That's two different things. False prophets are false prophets. But true prophets can fall. David is a good example. David was a true man of God, but he failed. So there are false prophets, but then there are fallen prophets. Sometimes good men sin. Sometimes prophets of God, they fall into sin. They are a fallen prophet. They have fallen into sin. They're not a false prophet. They're a fallen prophet. So the church is not perfect. The leaders of the church are not perfect. But my friend, God ordained the church. And there are those that say the church is not important. You don't have to go to church. Well, that's right. You don't have to go to church to be saved. But the church is the body of Christ. If you say it's not important to be in church somewhere, you're saying the body of Christ is not important. And that's a false teaching that you don't need an organized church. You don't need somewhere. If it's in the basement of somebody's house, it doesn't have to be in a place with a steeple. But God ordained that His people come together on a regular basis. There are no lone rangers in God's army. We're in an army. We must be together. An army gets its strength from discipline and cohesion. Without discipline and cohesion... An army is worthless. Discipline and cohesion, the coming together and operating as a, excuse me, as a unit. That is what we as the church, that gives us our power. So the way of Korah is when people protest against the church and they say, I'm not going to be a part of the church. I'm just going to live my life and I don't need the church. Well, you do need the church. By the way, I'll tell you this. You know, I mentioned about the perversion of the gospel and and the profiting from the gospel. I tell you, if you're in a church, and that church has left the gospel, I'm going to tell you, my friend, you need to leave that church. Some people say, and I think I heard Adrian Rogers say this first, but I'm going to borrow it. Some folks say, well, you know, Grandma, she's buried back there. So if Grandma could get up and leave, she would. She wouldn't stay there either. She can't leave. She's buried. But you can't. And it doesn't matter how long you've been in a place, if that place has left the gospel and you're following the gospel, you need to go where the gospel is. Not stay in a building or in an organization that has left the gospel. But God has called all of His people to be involved in His church. Somewhere there is a body of believers that God has called every believer to, whether it's this one or someone else there. God has called you. If you're here this morning, you know Jesus as Lord and Savior. You need to be in church somewhere. Either here or somewhere, God has called you to be a part of His church. Well, I'm going to close with the last thing I'm going to say is what happened to them. They're doomed. Well, the Bible is very clear about the doom of the false prophet. I'm just going to read what Jude says. 
He says they are spots on your love feast. They feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the wind. The late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. Wandering stars for whom reserved, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And then verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. We're all going to be judged by the Lord. And my friend, I, I firmly believe that those, the Bible says that there's a greater condemnation not only to those who practice evil, but for those who not only practice evil, but teach men likewise. It's one thing to be a sinner. God's going to judge you. But if I get up and I begin to tell others that, listen, it's okay, don't worry, you're fine, God approves of you, then the Bible says I have a greater condemnation because I not only sin but I approve those who do and I give them I ease their conscience which is trying to to bring them back to to, to repentance and salvation and I, I, I pull water on that conscience and I say don't worry about it it's okay beware of the wolf let's pray Lord we thank you for your word and I pray God that you will help us to turn to your word for guidance not to our own feelings or our own opinions because, Lord, we know that we can't trust our own emotions or our own opinions, that they're shifting sand. But, Father, I pray that we would stand upon the solid rock, and that is Your Word. And, Lord, I pray that You would help us to beware of wolves, Lord, to beware of those that would bring us down a path that is false and not true. Lord, help us to always stand for Your truth and teach us Your truth through Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we stand and sing, if you're here this morning... Maybe God has spoken to your heart. You want to come pray or, or you want to make a decision for the Lord. You just obey the Lord as we stand and sing.